Good morning, Christ Church family. Hope you all are doing well this morning. And if you are joining with us for the first time this morning in our online worship streaming service, welcome. We are so glad that you would worship with us in this way. And I do hope that when this whole thing ends that we will still have an opportunity to meet actually face-to-face. I actually can't wait to be able to get together with all of you all again and uh, just be in each other's presence face-to-face. I just miss kind of being in that, uh, yeah, face-to-face worship. That's kind of like what it's all about. Um, If you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be diving into Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 18. And so join with me as we turn to God in prayer. Father, we ask that as we open up your word, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that you would give us enlightenment by your Holy Spirit that you would enable us, O God, to be attentive to your voice. And we ask that in attending to your voice, that you might shape and mold us into your image, that your voice would be stronger and more powerful and more defining for us than all of the other voices around us. And we ask that you would do this now by the power of your spirit and to the glory of your name. And all God's people said, Amen. So if you were here over the last several weeks, uh, we had been in a series called uh, Centered in the Chaos, and we had been looking together at the book of Psalms. But last week and this week, I'm taking a pause from that series just to talk to you very directly about the events that are going on around us in our culture. So the events of the last couple weeks and, of course, last night uh, have raised questions about policing in our nation. And it's also, it's also ignited a larger conversation about how much and to what extent systemic and institutionalized racism still remain a part of American life. And it seems like every day in every sphere of American life, uh, ranging from Nike to NASCAR, from Merriam-Webster and their definitions, uh, to ABC's uh, flagship show, The Bachelor, uh, we see institutions and individuals taking a stand against racism. And more and more, uh, there are black and brown Americans who are emboldened and who are encouraged to share their own very painful and personal stories of being the objects of racial profiling and of discrimination. Uh, This last week, there was uh, a group of scientists and students that shared their experiences on Twitter under the hashtag, uh, uh, hashtag black in the ivory. And many, many, in fact, thousands upon thousands of people joined the course of voices naming and speaking truth about their own experience of racial profiling and discrimination in the academy. And so the conversation that we have been in has been vibrant, it's been rich, it's been loud. Uh, But of course, it hasn't been univocal. There have been dissenting voices in this conversation. There have been people that have raised questions about to what extent systemic and institutionalized racism really is still a reality in American life. Sure, they say uh, there are individual racists. There are individuals who are, you know, are, are racist, but, but is it really an institutionalized thing? Is it really systemic? Show me the proof. And even if it is, how is it even helpful to engage in this conversation? And I think what makes it more complicated is that this conversation on race has been tethered to what's happening in our culture right now following the protests with riots and with slogans like defund the police. 
And it's often expected that if somebody uh, speaks out against racism and for black lives, that they are automatically complicit somehow or agree with the tactics that are used by small, violent groups of rioters and anarchists. And then, of course, it's an election year, and so this issue is being politicized, and it's, beca it's becoming a very sensitive issue, a very divisive issue to talk about in families and in churches. And I know I myself, over the last week, have had many conversations with many of you over these issues, and I know it's fertile ground for division. And so this is a complex, it is a divisive, it's a difficult, for many people, it's a painful issue to talk about. And so you might ask the question, well, why are you talking about it then, Josh? You know, why not just keep going on with the series centered in the chaos? And I, I guess one answer to that question is because this is a gospel issue. You know, one of the most significant issues that the New Testament addresses is the unequal treatment of brothers and sisters in Christ, an unequal treatment of them based on notions of ethnic and racial superiority. In fact, it is there present in the very first church fight that we have in Acts 6. It is there at the first church meeting we have in Acts chapter 15. It's there in the earliest of the New Testament writings, Galatians. It's there in the most theological of the New Testament writings, Romans. It's there in the longest of the New Testament letters, 1 Corinthians. And so this is a major issue of tremendous importance to Jesus and to his first followers and to the New Testament. But I think another reason why I think it's important for us to talk about, it, not only because of its significance in the New Testament and to Jesus, I think it's important because these issues tend to be dominated and controlled in our culture by the discourse of either those on the right or on those on the left. And I think what happens to many of us is how we think about this and how we end up talking about these issues and engaging with others in these issues it's more controlled and governed by the rhetoric on the right or the left than it is by the rhetoric and the discourse given to us in the New Testament and from Jesus. And so this morning, what I wanna do is I want us to look at what is arguably the most significant and important text in the entire New Testament dealing with the issue of racial reconciliation. And it is the text found to us in uh, Ephesians chapter two, verses 11 to 18. Now in context, this is a letter that is written to a church in a large city in Asia Minor called Ephesus. And it appears that there were divisions between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles was simply a broad category for anybody who wasn't Jewish in the first century. By the way, it wasn't a category, it wasn't a label that the, the non-Jewish people gave themselves. That was the, the category that the Jews gave them. There were Jews and then there were non-Jews. And some of the Jewish Christians, it appears, based on their own race and ethnicity and culture, uh, were treating some of the Gentile Christians as second-class citizens. They were excluding them. Uh, they were calling them names. In fact, look at what it says in chapter 11, or chapter 2, verse 11. It says this, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Stop there. Notice what it says in verse, verse 11, though. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. Literally in Greek, uh, that could be translated the foreskins, which sounds crass, and it is. It was something of a racial slur. 
And he's saying, look, uh, some of you are being called names. You're being given labels by other people based upon your own ethnicity, your race, your culture. And Paul says, all of this needs to stop. And so here he addresses the church. He addresses us on this issue. And as we dive into this and we immerse our own imaginations into this text, we can have our own imagination transformed by the truth of the gospel with respect to race, uh, racism, and reconciliation. And so I want us to explore this passage by taking note of three important phrases in the text. And so I kind of want to walk through three phrases and just point them out to you one by one. And the first phrase I want to draw to your attention is that phrase in verse 14 that says, the wall of hostility. Notice what it says in verse 14. It says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Notice that. He speaks here of a dividing wall of hostility. And this, this dividing wall is what divided Jews and Gentiles. And this wall of hostility becomes the object of Jesus's redeeming work on the cross. Part of what he does is destroy this wall of hostility. So it raises the question, what is the wall of hostility? And commentators have wrestled over this question. What is Paul especially referring to when he speaks about Christ breaking down this dividing wall of hostility? Well, some have suggested that it's referring to the, a wall that existed in the temple courts of Jerusalem. And so in Jerusalem, Gentiles were allowed to enter into uh, the broad court of the Gentiles, as it was called, but the inner courts, they were excluded from. And there was a wall that existed between the inner court and the outer court. And on that wall, uh, they have found this piece of writing. There was this warning, let no foreigner enter. Anyone caught violating will be accountable for their ensuing death. And so what Paul could be saying here is that uh, Jews and Gentiles are brought together in one new temple, one new place where together they can side by side worship the one true God. And certainly that is true. But I think that Paul is getting at something more with this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. Others have said, well, perhaps the wall refers to the law with its ritual requirements. And so the, the Old Testament law uh, gave this long litany of rituals and practices that the Jews would have to engage in. And those practices would distinguish them off like wearing a badge that they were the true people of God. So when they kept kosher and when they observed Sabbath, and when they circumcised their baby boys. In all of those ways, they were distinguishing themselves against uh, all of the non-Jewish people out there saying, we are the special, the elect, the holy, the chosen ones of God. And Paul could be saying that Christ has actually demolished uh, all of those rituals and requirements that separated Jew from Gentile because God is now creating one new humanity that's not made distinct by the ritual observance of the law. But I think that Paul is probably getting at something even further than this. I don't think he's primarily has in mind about the wall and the temple or the wall of the law because notice what it says in our text. Paul here refers to the wall of hostility. The wall of hostility. In other words, this isn't a wall in the temple. It's not a wall 
of the law. Instead, this is a wall of hostility. And where does hostility exist? It exists, of course, in a broken, fallen human soul. This word hostility is a strong word. It can be translated antagonism or hatred or animosity. And so Paul is saying, look, you have built up a wall in your hearts of animosity and hatred against people who do not share your race or your cultural background or your ethnicity. But I think he's revealing to us something here about the dynamic of racism as we experience it. You see, what was happening in the first century is something that happens, I think, among a lot of us a lot of the time. The Jews were actually taking something that was good and God-given, namely the temple and the law. And they took these good gifts and they distorted them and misused them in order to make them feel superior and better to people who didn't have these same gifts from God. And you could almost think about racism in a similar terms. Racism, what is it? It's taking something good and created and God-given, your skin color, your bone structure, your hair type, or maybe your cultural background, and it uses it as a basis for your fragile, insecure self feeling better and smarter and more hardworking and less dangerous than other people who don't have your same skin color or bone structure or hair type. This is what we do and this is what they were doing because our fragile eagles are always looking for things to cling to and make us feel superior and better to others and give us something, some basis for looking down on another person. And what Paul is saying in this text is that this was not simply a localized problem. He he says, this is a global problem. Notice he speaks here about this wall of hostility, using these good things and using it as a basis of moral superiority and of racial superiority and looking down on other peoples. He says, this wall of hostility separated Jews from Gentiles. That's how they divided up the entire human race. In other words, what Paul is saying is that this is not simply a localized problem. It's a global problem. And it's not a mild issue, it's an acute issue. He uses the word hostility and hatred. And here's what I want you to see. You know, oftentimes we kind of exist in our own tiny little worlds, but this problem of racism is not a tiny problem. It is a history-long problem, and it's a global problem, and it's not just an American problem or a black and white problem or an Asian problem or a Jewish problem. It is a massive, global, devastating, oppression-creating, bloody problem. For example, the, the Armenian genocide in Turkey in 1915, a million Armenians slaughtered. The Holocaust in Germany... Six million Jews slaughtered. Who knows how many tens of millions in the Soviet gulags under Stalin and the massacres in Rwanda in 1994, uh, the Japanese slaughter of six million Chinese, Indonesians, Koreans, Filipinos, Indochinese, bloodletting, all in the name of ethnicity and race. And of course, I don't need to tell you about what's happened on our own shores. When European settlers arrived in the Americas, there were 10 million Native Americans already living here. And by 1900, there were only 300,000. 
And then between 1525 and 1866, 12.5 million people were kidnapped from Africa and sent to America through the transatlantic slave trade. Some 3.9 million of the 10.7 million who survived the harrowing two-month journey were enslaved in the United States. And so this wall of hostility that we use to justify our abuse and our oppression and our violence of other people, usually with some self-interest in mind. It is a global problem, it's a massive problem, and it is a deeply human problem. It's a deeply human problem. I know it's common and I hear it. I heard it this week. Oh, of course, you know, they're still racist. You know, there are people that, that, you know, they do racist things, you know, but not me. They're out there. I know they're out there, but not in here. You know, we are the good people. The bad, evil racists are out there. Reminds me of uh, something I had read from an author called Josh Butler who wrote a book called The Skeletons in God's Closet. And in this book, he made this statement. He said, look, we are not as good as we think we are. In the wealthier nations of the world, we often harbor subtle, unrecognized arrogance that assumes we are somehow immune to complicity in truly evil behavior. He goes on, we would be shocked what we are capable of. And friends, that is a deeply offensive, but a deeply biblical idea. We would be shocked what we are capable of. He says, I've spent a lot of time hanging out with ex-Khmer Rouge soldiers and have been surprised to discover how normal they are. Though responsible for the horror of Cambodia's killing fields, their demeanor reminds me of my peaceful grandfather. Jewish Holocaust survivors recount stepping into post-war courtrooms, expecting to encounter the Nazi soldier on the stand as a demonic monster, but shocked instead to find him a neighborly normalcy. This is because these killers are not the other. They are, they are us under extraordinary conditions. These racist killers are not the other. They are us, all of us, under extraordinary conditions. Or as Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said, the line separating good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties, but right through every human heart. And Paul here is speaking of this wall of hostility that, if, that is built up in human hearts between Jews and Gentiles, between black and white, between uh, you know, Asian and Latino. It, 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 it arises in every human heart. There's an impulse toward sin and toward all kinds of sin, and especially toward this sin of taking your own fragile, insecure egos and clinging to something that makes you feel better than someone else, and then looking down upon them, having biases about them, feeling better about yourself in light of them. He says, it's a human problem. It is ugly. It's wicked. But here's what he says. Here's the good news. Christ came into the world to destroy this dividing wall of hostility. You know, Jesus came into the world, of course, to bring reconciliation between people and God. But Jesus also came into this world to bring reconciliation between people and people. 
And this is precisely what Paul argues in our text. And let me draw your attention now to the next phrase. Look at what he says. He says in verse 15 and 16, he says, by abolishing the law of commandments and the ordinances, that he might create one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And the phrase just I want to draw to your attention is that simple phrase, through the cross. How is it that the creator of heaven and earth who looks down upon the humanity that he called into being, this whole world of image bearers who are broken and marred and who are fragile and insecure and who are building up all kinds of walls. How does the creator come into this world in order to bring healing? What does he do? Paul says he brings reconciliation through the cross. And notice the different phrases he uses. He says, verse 14, he broke down the wall of hostility. Verse 15, he abolished the basis of hostility. Verse 16, he killed the hostility and he does it all through the power of the cross. Which raises a question, how does the cross destroy the hostility and actually bring reconciliation between people? And I think we can answer that question in many, many ways. I mean, there's no end of plumbing the depths to which the cross brings reconciliation between human beings and God and between human beings and each other. But let me just hi highlight three ways I believe that the, the cross actually brings reconciliation between broken people. Number one, the cross does this because it flattens us all. One thing that the gospel declares to us very loudly and clearly is that we need a savior. Why on earth would the creator go through the lengths that he has gone through, coming into this world as a human being, taking on the lowest form of human being and dying this shameful and painful and bloody death on the cross? Why would he do that? And it's because you and I are broken sinners in dire need of a savior. And here is one thing that unites you and everyone else in this world. You and I are sinners and we need a savior. You know, so often in, in our polarized, politicized discourse in our culture, we are constantly antagonizing the other. And we're constantly speaking about how dumb and how stupid the other person on that side of the fence is or on that side of the aisles. You know, you know those people who are red staters say the blue staters are the trouble and then the blue staters say the, the red staters are the trouble. And Jesus looks at us and he says, you're all in trouble, but I love you. And in my love, I have come after you. And so the cross flattens us as sinners in need of a savior. And we have solidarity with everyone else in this world because we are all a mess in need of a savior. But the cross not only flattens us, the cross lifts us. Notice what he says back in verse 17. 
He says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and he preached peace to those who are near. And for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, the cross lifts us. God descended. God, like the, the prodigal son, he took a far journey into a long country, or he took a long journey into a far country in order to rescue us prodigals and bring us back home to have a seat at the Father's table. And he describes this as having full access into the presence of God. Friends, you are no longer defined by your dysfunctional family. Your first identity is not your skin color or your racial background or your ethnicity. Your, you are, your fundamental identification is as a person who is loved by God. And it is this fundamental identity as being objects of God's unmerited, sacrificial, self-giving ocean of love that unites us with all other people in this world. For God so loved the world. And so we are all flattened by the cross in our sin. We are all raised by the cross to, to be identified fundamentally as those who are loved by God. This is our fundamental identity. And this is the way in which we should view all other human beings as people who are objects of God's dear love and affection. But thirdly, the cross teaches us you know, there's this strange uh, little phrase in this text. Notice what he says in verse uh, 16. Again, it says, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because what is the cross? The cross is an instrument of execution. The cross was how the Romans killed Jesus. But here he says, the killing of Jesus is how God has killed the hostility. In other words, hate and hostility and animosity that exists in this world is driven out first and foremost, not by more hate and animosity and hostility and violence. It is driven out by cross-shaped love. Or as Dr. King famously said, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And in the cross, God actually drove out hate. He killed the hostility by giving his life away in Christ. And here the cross teaches us the way to move into reconciliation. Yes, it is by recognizing that we are all a mess, we're all sinners, and though you may look down on what someone else does, what would you do had you found yourself in that same set of circumstances? Do you know what you're capable of? And then the cross lifts us. You have been an object of God's unmerited love, and so have all of your brothers and sisters all throughout this world. We are objects of divine love. But then the cross teaches us that in order to move towards each other, we need to reenact the sin-bearing, forgiveness-extending love of God in Jesus Christ. I remember reading a book 
a while back by Bishop Desmond Tutu called No Future Without Forgiveness. And in this book, he talks about the Rwandan genocide and he, he talks about this speech that he gave to a, a group of, of Hutus and Tutsis, I think is what the groups were called. But he said that what happens historically in these kind of conflicts is the people with power oppress and do violence on people who don't have power. And then the people who have been done violence to finally rise up against those in power and they can overthrow them with violence. And then he says what happens is that cycle of violence just keeps going on and on and on and on. And he says the only way it will stop is if somebody says, I will take the wrong and I will absorb it in myself and I will let it end here and its power will be broken. And instead of extending evil for evil, name-calling for name-calling, tweet for tweet, insult for insult, I will extend forgiveness and love. And this is the way towards reconciliation. And so we see that the cross is God's means of reconciliation. But thirdly, there's a final phrase I wanna draw to your attention in this text. And it's found in chapter two, verse 19. And look at what it says. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. So now he's giving the result of God's work in Christ on the cross. He says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And here's what I want you to see. You know, when Paul here speaks about reconciliation and how it begins to get worked out in the church, he doesn't say that it gets worked out in theory, nor does it simply get worked out in theology books or in ideas. He says it gets worked out within the household of God. Earlier, he says that we are reconciled to Christ as one new humanity in one body. And the word body in the ancient world, it was a metaphor describing a social community where people interacted with each other. And what Paul is teaching us is that God's reconciliation in Christ is not simply an idea to hold on to or to argue about. It is a truth to be embodied in our relationships within the community, within the household of God's family. And it's interesting the closeness to which he envisions the church family being together. He speaks again of us being a household, which what is it about a household, especially right now in quarantine? People are up in your business all the time in a household. You can't get away from each other. You'd like to, but you can't. And then he speaks about us being like bricks in a temple. And of course, bricks being piled one upon another, being held together. You, you are locked in and close and touching each other and rubbing against each other. And here's what I think he wants us to see is that this vision of reconciliation in Christ needs to be worked out in community. And the only way it can be worked out in community is if we are in relationship with people who are different from us which is at least one of the reasons why it is so important for us as a community to have a vision of becoming more and more a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church. It's because it is when we are around people who are different from us and we engage with each other with humility that is appropriate for somebody who is a child of Adam, who is full of biases and sins and all kinds of blindness, 
when I interact with other people and we are kind of like, all of a sudden I start to learn and I start to grow and new understanding is birthed. Or as one uh, commentator that I read put it, he said this, listen. He said, when no tensions are confronted and overcome, because insiders or outsiders of a certain group meet happily among themselves. Let me repeat that. Where no tensions are confronted and overcome. You know, some of you might have wished that we wouldn't go into topics like justice or racism because you don't wanna kind of bring up issues that might actually cause us to disagree with each other. Can't we kind of just keep the peace and keep things nice? But what he's saying here is that where no tensions are confronted and overcome because insiders and outsiders of a certain group meet happily among themselves, then no new thing, no peace, and the one new humanity created in Christ is missing. Then no faith, no church, no Christ is found or confessed. In other words, we need difference and we need to have our differences kind of like emerge in, among each other. And then we need to learn how to listen and hear. And let me just say one more thing. For reconciliation to work out within community, this is not cheap grace. It's not simply ignoring a history of wrongs and moving forward. Reconciliation always involves speaking truth about wrong that has been done. And I think within the church in America, if we are to grow as churches into being truly multi-ethnic communities, then we need to be honest. The church in America, the white church in America needs to be honest about our dark and diabolical and really demonic complicity with systems of injustice and segregation and racism before it and, and, and enslaving Africans who are ripped out of their homeland. We need to be honest about what's happened in the past and speak truth. There is no healing, there's no reconciliation unless there is truth speaking about what's been done. There's also no reconciliation, there's no healing if you don't let someone speak their own truth to you. You know, more and more over the last couple weeks, more than I ever have in my life, I've been hearing stories of people's personal experience of racial profiling and of discrimination. And it's been a learning experience for me. And friends, rather than running from the stories of others or dismissing them because it wasn't your experience, what we need to learn into as a community is to learn more and more and to hear more and more of one another's stories. And of course, that goes for all of your stories. All of us has, have different stories of coming from different places and different experiences and different home lives. And it's when we speak our truth about our own life and about our own experience and we are heard and in that hearing, we are heard compassionately and lovingly and understandingly, we can actually begin to experience healing and growth and reconciliation as a community. And so there needs to be truth speaking and there needs to be compassionate and humble listening. And then there needs to be ongoing and regular forgiveness where we're constantly extending grace and forgiveness to each other, even as God in Christ has continued to extend his grace and forgiveness to you. And you know that verse, his mercies are new every morning. 
What it requires in community is for our mercies to be new every morning for the stupid and arrogant and maybe blind things people might say to you that feel hurtful or ways in which somebody hasn't listened to you. We need mercy and forgiveness and continue to move towards each other. And that's my hope and prayer for us as a church. And so we need to be good listeners. We need to be humble speakers of truth. We, we need to be forgivers and grace givers. And then finally, and we'll end with this, we need to be people who sit regularly together at the Lord's table, which is what we're gonna do right now. And so I wanna invite our band to come up. Jesus has given us a practice whereby we can celebrate and reinforce the unity we share in Jesus Christ. And look, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know how you're feeling this morning, how you're experiencing the things we've been talking about this morning. But I know this, that you are an object of God's sacrificial self-giving love in Jesus Christ and that Christ's body was broken for you and his blood was shed for you and his body was broken for me and his blood was shed for me. And that reality brings us together as sinners who have been redeemed and reconciled by our loving savior. And it's when we return to this table again and again and again with humility, with confession, with acknowledgement of our own need that we find that Christ continues to reinforce the oneness that we share as sinners saved by grace. And as we approach this table, I just wanna invite you now just to pause for a moment. And I want you just to confess in your own heart those places where your own fragile, insecure, broken self has clung to maybe some good things in your own life in order to make you feel superior and better than another person and has actually created a wall of hostility. And I want you just to pause in the presence of God and allow the spirit of God just to search you right now and expose some area in your heart where you wanna just hold, you just wanna name before God and confess and say, God, this is a space where I am in deep need of your grace. And it may be your skin color, it may be your cultural background, it may be your Bible knowledge, it may be your political ideology, or the talk show hosts who you listen to and you imbibe and you think everyone else is well, they're just less than. Just pause and name that space in your own life and your need for God's grace. Our great God and Father, we now confess to you that we are people who often, because of our own fear and insecurity, our own deep brokenness and the wound that we have deep in our soul, 
we have looked to other things than you and your love to be our true and final and fundamental identity. God, cleanse us and forgive us, we pray. Reaffirm, O oh God, our oneness in Christ with all of those who we find all too easy to dismiss and write off and make us a community of reconciliation. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.